So didn't you just like our group, two, two daughters and a mama? Oh, it was great. Thank you all very much. Find where I'm at in my Bible today. <clears throat> well, today we continue in our series, but before we do that, I want to get up on a soapbox. So today marks the day that should convince all of you that socialism has evils. Now, let me explain that. Today is the day that the government messes in your business. So if you like the government messing in your business, you support daylight savings time. You know, I'm Baptist. I was born Baptist, and I'll be buried Baptist. So I believe once saved, always saved. But I'll get off my soapbox. So today, uh, if you have been following along with our series and doing your best to keep up with the, the Bible reading, uh, you'll come to notice that uh, as we have dug into Mark, he has a, a unique way of uh, conveying the gospel in a way that Matthew didn't. Uh, literarily, they're, they're two different pieces of work. They both tell about uh, Jesus and the good news, but they're told from such different perspectives. Uh, um, Mark is writing in a way that um, he's heard the stories preached, heard, heard them from Peter's, and he interviewed those eyewitnesses, and he put together this account so that we may know the good news, that we may know it in such a way that we are convinced that we must take action. And we'll see that a little bit in today's sermon. Uh, but before we get there, this is what you may have missed from last week if you didn't read um, through the gospel with us. Jesus, again, teaches in parables. He teaches about the sower and what it meant and why he even uses parables to teach the crowd. He teaches about seeds, seeds growing, the mystery of how faith blossoms and how the kingdom of God spread. He talks about a mustard seed from such small, insignificant beginnings the kingdom of God comes and overshadows and allows places for birds to build nests and find security and safety. And he calms the sea. The day when the disciples are out on the lake and a storm blows up seemingly out of nowhere. Where is Jesus? Comfortably asleep. He's tired. He's been working hard. I mean, I've never been able to touch somebody and restore sight or make a lame walk, but I imagine that can't be easy on you. You know, physically, preaching doesn't seem to be a very demanding task. Well, at least in our tradition, it doesn't anyways. But it just saps the energy out of you. You seem like you spend more calories preaching a 30-minute sermon than you do working um, in construction all week long. At least that's the opinion that I have. But Jesus is there, calms the seas. And then he crosses over the lake, and we have the story that we read uh, with our scripture reading today. And that's one of my favorite stories in Mark, the stories of Jesus and meeting Legion. I mean, I, I don't picture it as this kind of calm little scene where they just get out of the boat, and there's this, this man that needs healing. Jesus goes up and has a little conversation, and boom, a herd of pigs are running into the sea. Now, I, I vision this in my brain cast in a horror movie. I mean, this is a guy walking on walls. He can break chains with his bare hands. And then when he finally gets down, there's probably this, we are legion, you know, that kind of voice talking. This is a scene that we see there. And this scene of such utter depravity in this man's soul and the conditions of all these demons that he is facing. 
has drove, drove him away from society. People knew who he was, but they avoided him at all costs. They tried to at one point uh, tend to him, but because of his condition, they could not. And he's driven away. But because of a touch of Jesus, because of a conversation with Jesus, he's brought back to his right mind. He is restored to a community, and he becomes that first missionary that goes and tells what Jesus had done for him. Then he goes out to his hometown. He's rejected there. But now there's a, a, a literary device I want to point out, and you may have noticed it. You know, there, there's a fancy term, but I like to call it the, the Mark and Sandwich. And what that means is in this gospel, as you're reading it through, maybe for the first time from start to finish, you notice that Jesus will introduce a story, or Mark will introduce a story to his readers. And then there's kind of an interlude uh, for the story of uh, Jairus' daughter and the woman who, who was healed. Jesus meets Jairus, this leader, and he says, My daughter is sick to the point of death. Come quickly. I mean, there seems to be an urgency in this father's request so that Jesus may come and touch and heal his daughter. And they're pushing their way through the crowd like he would, trying to get to the place that he's trying to go. And a woman sneaks up, you know, thinking, you know, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And this poor woman, in, in, in all the problems that she'd gone through, had spent all of her resources from doctor after doctor, and nothing had helped. Not only had nothing helped, she had gotten worse. She sneaks up, touches his garment. And then Jesus says, who touched me? Disciples are like, are you kidding me? Who touched you? Do you not see all these people around you? And you think, who touched you? And then the woman fesses up. And it's because of her faith. She was healed. And then the daughter dies. And then Jesus uses that as a way to also show how the kingdom of God is breaking in, that death, life doesn't matter. It's all in God's hands. And this happens over and over again where, where a story is inter, introduced and there is something sandwiched in between. It's not these neat little packet of tales that we sometimes do. You've probably heard sermons to where if you look at the scripture reference, it'll be verses so-and-so from Mark, comma, and then these verses, they skip those middle sections. But those middle sections help us understand the story as a whole, and it helps produce what we're looking for. For instance, what comes up next is Jesus calls the twelve and sends them out on missions. He gives them authority to heal and cast out demons and all this kind of stuff. And then we have the story of John the Baptist. How he was killed, beheaded. By Herod. This not only buys those 12 disciples time to go out and do their work and then gather back up. But it shows how the kingdom's priorities are now shifting. That forerunner to Jesus is no longer on the scene because Jesus has been announced. And his work is now and ever in the presence. And the 12 are going out to do their work to carry on Jesus' own call in their own lives. And then when they gather back up, they start to tell Jesus is what had happened. And he feeds the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, we know that they go on ahead and Jesus comes to walk on the water. 
And there's even more stories of healing that, that we have missed this past week. But then the, the tone starts changing where there once was early confrontation with the Pharisees is becoming more and more regular with, with them and the, the, tri, the scribes getting thicker and thicker. But then these, these oddballs keep showing up in Mark's gospel. This Seraphonician lady, not one of those lost tribes of Israel, but one of these kind of on the, the skirts, this Gentile comes to Jesus. And he has what's probably one of the, the oddest conversations in our modern perspective. He tells them, I'm not going to give you anything. This food, this that I bring, is for the children of Israel. He says, why would I throw it to the dogs? I mean, this seems like hate language. He's calling this woman a dog. But even in this rejection, she stands firm in what she knows and has heard about Jesus. And she responds, well, even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. She knew her place with the availing culture at the time and what the Jewish perspective was for them. But she stood firm because she saw something in Jesus that others hadn't seen. Those that he had come to seek and serve. And her faith makes her well. Then he heals a deaf man. Now these healing stories aren't just there to capture our imagination. To show that Jesus was indeed filling all these prophecies. But they were also kind of symbolic in their nature. If you've been following along, you see how the disciples have seen all these events. Feeding the 5,000. Jesus walking on the water. And all these kind of things. But yet they still couldn't hear what Jesus was saying to them. And so Jesus heals this deaf man in their very presence. But then, of course, there's more interaction with these Pharisees. In, in chapter 8, we see that Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. But he has to touch him twice. Does Jesus not have the power to heal somebody the right way to start with? Does he? I mean, he's healing these daughters that are not even present. He said, go, your faith has made you well. And at that very hour they poured, her daughter regained her strength and all this kind of stuff. He's raising people from a distance. All this kind of stuff he can do does not have to be in the presence. But this is an odd story. This man who is blind, he touches. And he says, well, what do you see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees. They're blurry. So he touches again to give them their sight. These disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry are only seeing the trees of the kingdom. They're not seeing what God is doing in their presence. Everything is blurry to them. They, they see it coming, but they can't distinguish it from their, their understanding of their traditions and what Jesus is pointing them to. Because even still, at this point, they are arguing over who is the greatest among them. Who's going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand or his left but we see it's not till the crucifixion that they are touched again when the Holy Spirit is given to them and they can finally see clearly what Jesus was doing in their presence back in those days. But even in this situation, Jesus is starting to see. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that all the Old Testament prophets had spoken about. And he is the one that has come to liberate them 
But he still doesn't understand, does he? Because he goes and he tells Jesus that, you know, this prediction of your death, that's not going to take place. I'm not going to allow it. I'm not going to let them crucify you. Come on, get behind me. We'll take this on. I got this sword here. You know, I'm a fisherman, so that means I'm really skilled to use a weapon. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. But then they go up on a mountain. Mountaintop, just like in the Old Testament. Just like Moses had gone up on a mountain to, to be with God. And Jesus begins to become radiant and glows. It says, whiter than any bleach of a garment could do on this world. There's something special. Then, then Moses and Elijah appear. Peter not knowing what to say because he was scared. I mean, I would have been too. You go up there and your boss just starts glowing. I mean, the only thing I compare to that is watching a Simpsons TV show. Where's Jesus glowing in their presence? And this incredible event is taking place. He says, let me build you a tent. Let me build you a place to stay so we don't have to let this moment in. The voice came and said, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. You do what he says. And they come down. And we know as they come down, they find that the disciples who had been given authority and power to heal had failed. And Jesus has to step in and touch this boy to get rid of these demons that causes epilepsy to restore him. And then the disciples, not wanting to embarrass themselves in public, they, you know, they came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we do it? He says, some of these things only come out by prayer. God may have called you to do a certain thing, and you may see the fruits because it is God who is working through you. But you'll come to a point in your life, in ministry, in your calling, that you may not succeed and you don't understand why. And it is because you have lost something. You have lost the connection with prayer and a relationship with God. Because if there's any power in you, it only comes through God and through Jesus in your life. It is not your natural abilities that change this kingdom. Because God has created each one of us unique. Some he's given a higher intellect. Some he's given the ability to, to make money. Some to touch and to heal and all these kind of things. But he's called you for his purpose. And his purpose is to give up your own ambition, take up your cross, and follow him. Because at this point in our gospel message, Jesus is dead set on Jerusalem. Which leads to Golgotha. That final descent or ascent, depending on how you look at it. To end his mission in this world. And so then he goes about teaching again about, about sin, about divorce, about what judgment looks like. And then he shows them the example of a child, of the innocence. He says, if you do not come to the kingdom of God without any mixed understanding of what the kingdom of God will do for you, like these children that I lay in front of you, if you put your pride before the kingdom of God, you may not enter in. That's why I use it as a symbol of a child. Because they have not yet made up their minds what this world's supposed to be about. Those disciples had determined already what Jesus had come to do. 
And they were wrong. The Pharisees couldn't accept Jesus because he didn't look like the one that they had been looking for, that they had been longing for, for generation after generation to be made right. Because their preconceptions blinded them, muted their tongues, deafened their ears to what God was doing in their very presence. Then, of course, we see the story of the rich young man, one who had been blessed materially, who had been blessed in this life, who had been set up. You know, those who are born with wealth have a tendency to make more wealth because they have a leg up. They have opportunities that those who are not born with wealth do not have. They call it a 1% rule. If you are just slightly ahead of the competition, you will slightly be ahead. So you win more battles. And as you win more battles, it's a compounding rate. And so the more and more you win, even if it's just by a little bit in the beginning, by the time you cross the entire United States, you are miles apart from the competition. And that is how our life will flow. But then Jesus has predicted his death now a third time in our gospel story. And then James and John make their request about the right hand and the left. And so then that brings us to our story today. Like, finally, preacher, we're getting to what we came for. I, I stole that from uh, Rev Reverend Tim Askew. He likes to say that. Come on, preacher, tell me about it. But in chapter 10, verse 46, if you will read with me, we'll share a story. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples... And a great crowd, uh, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, and said call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, that word again in our gospel, immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. On the way to the cross. Chapter 11 picks up the triumphal entry. So this is interesting. This person is healed, but he's named. You know, we know some of the friends and things like that, but this person is named. These nobodies, these insignificant, these outcasts in society, because that's what they saw. If you had an infirmity, if you were blind, if you were deaf, if you couldn't contribute to society, if you were unclean, if you were a leopard, you were placed down on the rung. He had sight at one point because he asked, I want my sight to be restored, to recover my sight. He could see, but now he can't. And because he has lost his vision, he has lost his place in society, he has lost his opportunity to do anything else than life other than sit on a roadside and beg. But this Bartimaeus, 
this named blind man, this son of uh, Tamir, you, you just pronounce that one. I'm going to call him Tim, son of Tim, because my dad's Tim. So this son of Tim is sitting there on the roadside. Maybe this Tim was an important person that justified putting this name in there. Maybe this uh, family in Jericho, this once pillar of the society, had lost their seat of grace, of honor, and that they were now reduced to begging. Maybe his life meant something so much more to these people reading this message, but for us, we are so far removed. We don't know who this Tim is. We don't really even know who Bartimaeus is other than he was a blind beggar. He was this nobody in society. Maybe he used to be a somebody. Maybe that's like us. Maybe we used to be somebody special. Maybe we used to gain honor and prestige because of our name. Maybe we were given the royal treatment all of our life. We were given the best seats at the table or the best places at school or the early interest into a business world. Maybe that was us, but because of something that happened, we are now stripped of all of that. We are left to beg on the roadside. But he heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. He heard about this one who could touch and who could heal. And what he had been doing. He'd been in Jericho before. Now he's coming through Jericho again. He said, this might be my only shot to see if Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is who he says he is, he is the descendant of the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come. To give us our sight. To restore our kingdom. He is my chance. And as Jesus and this large crowd, this entourage, is following him, he begins to speak. This isn't what the crowd wants, is it? They want to show Jesus this royal treatment so that he may honor them. That he may bless their city. He may do these things for him. But this beggar is now causing problem. He is crying out to this Jesus. He is causing a scene. But he persists all the more. Because in his heart of hearts, he knows that Jesus is his one chance. And if he stays silent now, he may miss it forever. And he'd have been right. Because Jesus does not pass this way as a minister again. This was his only chance and he seized it, crying out, all the more, it says, to have mercy on me. Lord, I want to receive your grace. I know that my life does not deserve it, but please have this mercy on me, he calls out. And then Jesus stops and calls him. This turning point. This nobody just announced who Jesus was as his attention set firmly on the cross in the days ahead. This nobody who is named and mentioned because of the significance. He is the one who calls Jesus the title, the son of David, the one who comes. The promised Messiah, the promised deliverer has been announced by this blind man who although he could not see with his eyes, he could see who Jesus was with the eyes of his faith. 
And when those around him told him to be quiet and to hush up and to stay down, he persisted because with his eyes of faith he saw Jesus for who he was. The one who could restore him to the place he was before. Who could give him back what he had lost. And then Jesus asked him a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He'd already been calling out for mercy. But he poses this question in a way. That he has to respond. He says, Jesus, he says, Rabbi, this teacher, let me recover my sight. Let me see again. Let me see what you look like with my own eyes. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus didn't say, drop everything and come and follow me. He said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. His faith had restored him to this proper place. All those things that he had lost before. But he didn't go back to his old life. How could he? He had been touched by Jesus Christ in a way that no one else had because his condition was so personal to him. No one had lost the vision that he had lost. No one who had seen before and all those things had seen the things that he had saw because it was a personal connection with man. And it says immediately, that word again, Immediately, he recovered his sight. But where did he go? Did he go back to his wife, his children? Maybe he had none, maybe he did. Did he go to go take a shower because he could finally see to clean off all that dirt? No. He followed Jesus. Because when he was restored... He did the only thing he could. He followed the one who brought him back. His faith had restored him. But faith demands action. We see this over and over again in Mark's gospel. We see that through the end. Your faith in Jesus calls you to do something. It's not just a call down front and say, I believe in Jesus Christ today and today I give my life to him. And then you walk out this door and never once thought, have a second thought about this Jesus. No, this experience, this call on Jesus, this, this call that restored him, that brought him redemption. When he was given his sight, he goes to where Jesus is. He follows the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus led to the cross. I wonder what he saw what he witnessed. I wonder if after the week's events that unfolded in the days ahead, did he go back and tell others? Was he like our uh, demon-possessed man and shouted about the gospel experience? I wonder. He falls off our pages of history. But whatever it is, the faith that restored Bartimaeus called him to do something. It called him to follow Jesus to the way of the cross. And our faith today draws us to Jesus in a way that the world does not understand. 
those intellects, those scientists that have no place for God in their work, our culture who is so anti-Christianity, they can't see what faith does. As these disciples were seeing Jesus with their very eyes and they knew what he could do, they had not yet discovered the faith that would give them clarity. But this blind man really saw and he was touched and he was restored. The world may not understand your faith, but if you are like this man, it doesn't matter if they try to keep you quiet, to push you to the side of the road, so that the crowd, the masses, may follow through. Faith calls you to action. It draws you to Jesus and what it says. And faith lets us see what others cannot. So this is where we end our story for today. As our reading plan goes, we will finish the Gospel of Mark before we meet again. We'll open up a new Gospel. Try to stay with it. Read these words together. See how they flow together. Because they will open your eyes and allow you to see clearly what others just imagine as a bunch of trees walking around. You will see the kingdom of God in your presence. You will see how faith works through all of those as these children and as those who have spent a lifetime in faith. You will see Jesus for who he is. He was the one who restores our soul. Because as Bartimaeus called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He is the one who gives you mercy. This man hadn't earned grace. He was a beggar on the side of the road, insignificant in the eyes of the crowd. But Jesus heard him and he said, bring him to me. And he restored him to his place so that he may, through his faith, turn and follow Jesus where he would have him to go. So please join me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the witnesses and the testimony of those who saw you as you lived and walked on this earth. Lord, we are also thankful for the eyes of faith that you have get, given us. We can see what the world cannot. But as we see, we are called to respond with the eyes of faith. And to follow you where you may lead. And that place is not this great seat of honor for the world to marvel at. But it is your kingdom, your kingdom come. It is the way of the cross, the way of the servant. Lord, give us the strength in our hands so that we may do your very work that you have placed before us, but also guide our feet that we may walk that path where so many will flee from your presence when you are betrayed by this world. Go with us today. Watch over our lives. Protect us. Heal us of our infirmities. And give us the strength that may return here to be brothers and sisters. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation.
If Jesus has called you and you're ready to respond with your life, please come forward and let everyone here know about it. If you know your life is not where it should be and Jesus has been calling you to become more involved and you need to pray about it or you need to confess something, I don't know. This is your chance. So please come forward.